You're a 415er. 415 You're all about your San Francisco 49ers. And this is where you need to be for news, analysis, and, and, and more. And more. Welcome to the 415 hosted by Evan Gidding and Mark Grandy. What is going on, everyone? Welcome into a very special edition of the 415ers podcast. Of course, three times a week, Odyssey Sports Podcast Network, 95.7 The Game. Mark, Randy, Evan Giddings. It is a playoff edition, a playoff victory edition of the 415ers. Mark, my man, how are you? I'm doing well, Evan. Riding high after a Niners postseason win on Saturday. We're recording this here Sunday evening. Uh, we wanted to wait until we saw the results of the uh, Vikings and Giants game because if the Vikings came out on top, we would know the Niners' opponent. Uh, but the Giants pulled off the slight upset. So we we have that fresh in our minds, but still a dominant win for the 49ers over the Seahawks. I'm doing well. How are you, Evan? I'm fantastic. I know there was some uh, playoff upset so to speak this weekend and of course the Vikings going down being one of them but for those of you who know me uh, I'm a Chargers fan at heart and they of course took a very difficult L this weekend to the Jacksonville Jaguars we don't have enough time on the podcast to discuss that Mark so we're going to (laughs) discuss the positives of the weekend and the San Francisco 49ers but if you want to throw a shot or two in uh, now would be your time uh, I will only say maybe I, you know, recording this Sunday afternoon, I haven't heard anything yet. Maybe this results in the end of the Brandon Staley era for the Chargers. Who knows? And that could end up being a good thing. I guess we'll find out. But that's all I'll say on that. I, I know you're hurting. Let's just move on to the 49ers. Yeah, we'll see if it's three steps backward to move uh, four steps forward. Who knows? <laughs> but we're here to talk about the 49ers and their dominating victory against the Seattle Seahawks. Really a tale of two halves. They beat the Seahawks for the third time in this season. 41-23, the final score. It was Brock Purdy's coming out party. The defense shut out the Seahawks in the second half, leading to 25 unanswered points for the offense, Mark. And although maybe the first 30 minutes were not ideal, and I'm sure none of us really foresaw the Seahawks going into the locker room with a halftime lead, I think the second half restored a lot of confidence in what the Niners both did on Saturday, as well as what they could do in the postseason. And I want to start with the quarterback because I think that's where everything really changed for me as far as my confidence in this team and a lot of people's confidence at the point in which he had to enter for Jimmy Garoppolo. People were wondering how he was going to respond to a playoff atmosphere. It looked a little bit shaky in the first half, but at the end of the day, you look up, And for those watching on YouTube, you see the final line, which is 18 of 30, 330 yards, four total touchdowns. The first rookie to do that in his first postseason appearance and a second half that was pretty much flawless. Yeah, I I think you're right uh, when you say that it's a tale of two halves, not just for the team and the game in general, but more specifically for Brock Purdy. The first half, as you mentioned, was a little uneven. He missed a couple of throws early. I know there were a lot of questions post game is, you know, can you just, you know, say that was because of nerves, a rookie playing in his first postseason game does it just take a drive or two to, to get settled in. Um, I think there's something to that, but he was nine of 19 in the first half, 147 yards. He did throw a touchdown. He did take one sack. Um, 
Honestly, and I, I know we don't really have many bad halves to choose from, Evan, but that might have been Brock Purdy's worst half as a starter for the 49ers. Now, that's not saying that it was terrible. Again, he's been really, really good. Yeah, in a lot part, of ways, I feel like that's a compliment. It is. It really is. It's because there's not really much else to choose from. Um, but overall, probably his worst half as the starting quarterback of this 49er team. And there were mistakes for the whole team as well. I mean, Jimmy Ward with a really just a terrible decision at the end of the first half, hitting a sliding Geno Smith that gifted the Seahawks three points and gifted them the lead going into the second half. Uh, there were some some other issues as well. I mean, the defense, specifically Charvarius Mooney Ward, letting DK Met Metcalf get past him for a 50-yard touchdown. There was a lot of blame to go around for the first half, but but focusing specifically on Brock Purdy, I would argue probably the worst half of his professional career. Again, it's saying not much because he's had a lot of really good halves, but the second half, to your point, to come out and finish 18 of 30 for 332 yards, three passing touchdowns, and a rushing touchdown – he bookended maybe the worst half of his career with the best half of his career. He was incredible in the second half. He was unstoppable. The offense was flowing. You got Debo Samuel involved. Christian McCaffrey was great once again as well. Brandon Ayuk with clutch catch after clutch catch, except for one drop in the end zone, which would have been the highlight <laughs> of the century from Brock Purdy. Um, but all in all, Brock Purdy, he answered some questions because our main question heading into this game was, how is he going to, going to respond to some postseason adversity? And it it wasn't the pick six that we kind of threw out there as a potential issue. How is he going to bounce back from that? But it was a bad half, trailing at halftime. How did he respond? By coming out and putting 25 points on the board in the second half and leading the, the team through maybe their best half of football this season. He was incredible. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and look, if you want to counter with – Hey, you're playing the Seattle Seahawks. You've already beat them twice. Brock Purdy showed he could do it up in Seattle. This is a team that was, as we discussed in our preview episode, unable to stop the run for pretty much the second half of the season. It's a team that maybe didn't deserve to be in the playoffs and got a lot of help as a 9-8 and eight squad to get into the postseason. But this is where I felt like Brock Purdy answered the bell. And it was in the red zone. I mean, we saw some magical stuff from Brock Purdy. I mean, you mentioned the Brandon Ayuk non-catch. That play <laughs> oh would have gone down in history as a rookie quarterback doing that, a Mahomesian-like dance away from defensive ends and defensive linemen, scooting to his right, finding a pinpoint accurate throw to Ayuk in the back corner of the end zone. But he did that really all game long, well, specifically in the second half. But Brock Purdy and his ability to extend plays is the reason why this offense has been humming the way it has. And for a sixth game out of the seven that he has played, has put up 30 or more points, 41 a season high for the 49ers. Because he extends plays like no quarterback probably since Kaepernick for the 49ers in his ability to use his legs and create just enough opening for an Ayuk, for a Debo Samuel, for a George Kittle, for guys that are in of themselves experts at extending plays and, and getting yards after catch and figuring out where to find open space. Brock Purdy allows them to do that more so than any quarterback that I've seen, especially in the Kyle Shanahan era. So for Brock Purdy in the red zone to create 
windows and openings and then having enough you know gall to stand in the pocket knowing that he's going to take a hit or outside of the pocket knowing that he's going to be absolutely destroyed once he releases this football is what I saw on Saturday against the Seahawks team that in the second half was begging to be beat was begging to lay down and Brock Purdy I mean he had guys on the other side after the game talking about how you know, we're, we're trying to sack him. Pete Carroll's like, we're trying to get this guy, but we just simply cannot take him down. He was absolutely magical in the second half. And three touchdowns along with the rushing touchdown, and maybe he shouldn't have had the rushing touchdown because I thought Christian McCaffrey got in before on the play previous. But Brock Purdy, that's about as good as you can ask a guy in his situation as a rookie quarterback, as a guy that no one expects a lot out of, and a guy that has taken this offense to new heights he answered the bell on Saturday in a playoff scenario. I was extremely impressed. Yeah, I was. And just some of the numbers, putting them into context, Brock Purdy, the first rookie quarterback to account for four touchdowns in a playoff game, not just your first playoff start, but your first rookie quarterback in general uh, to, to account for four touchdowns in a playoff game. The last four quarterbacks to throw for 330 or more yards with four total touchdowns and zero interceptions in a playoff game. Patrick Mahomes did it last year. Matt Ryan did it in 2017. Aaron Rodgers also did it in 2017. And now add Brock Purdy to that list. So Aaron Rodgers, Matt Ryan, Patrick Mahomes, and Brock Purdy, the last four quarterbacks with 330 or more passing yards, four total touchdowns, and no interceptions in a playoff game. He's the youngest player in NFL postseason history to throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns, beating out Dan Marino, who was his childhood hero. Uh, an incredible uh, number there. You also look at history maybe Niner fans are a little more familiar with. Brock Purdy with four career postseason touchdowns already has as many career playoff touchdowns as Jimmy Garoppolo does. Jimmy Garoppolo never threw for more than 232 yards and two touchdowns in a single game. And in his first game, Purdy for 332 and four total touchdowns. So any way you slice it, any way you look at the numbers, historic day for Brock Purdy. More importantly, he leads the Niners to the win. And I think after a performance like this, Evan, you're more confident in the 49ers' ability to go out and win a game against another elite quarterback, a Josh Allen, a Patrick Mahomes, because you saw Brock Purdy put up 41 points. Not saying that he's going to be as good as those guys or play as well as those guys, but the fact that he could help lead this offense to a 40-point game in the postseason, I think, gives you more confidence moving forward. I think it does, and... Well, actually, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily more confident because of a couple things. And I did mention one of them in them being who he was playing in the Seattle Seahawks. We're going to see next week him either play Dallas or Tampa Bay, who is already beaten. And if he does the exact same thing, you know, I, I'm certainly going to give him credit for that. But where I will say that Brock Purdy got the benefit on Saturday was when Kyle Shanahan dove deep into his bag and got back to basics in the first half. Yep. The San Francisco 49ers threw the ball twice, almost twice as much as they ran the football again against a team that the last eight weeks of the season had shown you they could not stop the run. And we were talking about how we thought this was going to be a big Christian McCaffrey game. Well, 
on the first touch of the game, he goes 68 yards and then doesn't seem to get the ball the rest of the first half. Meanwhile, in the second half, that opening 13-play drive, to me, is where Kyle Shanahan reset, got back to what I think he wanted to do, which was put the ball on the ground. 10 of those 13 plays were runs, and that's where the game changed in favor of the 49ers. So as much as I do think Brock Purdy was dynamic, he was dominant against the Seahawks, where he was allowed to be himself, which was moving the ball through the air and allowing his playmakers to do damage after the catch, was after the Seattle Seahawks had to respect the ground game of the 49ers. That's not something we saw in the first half, but that's what we saw plenty of to begin the second half, and that's where I think things opened up for Brock Purdy. You're right on. I agree with you 100%. I was, you know, at halftime going through some of the numbers, thinking back to, to how the Niners fell behind at half. And I thought the same thing. The Niners need to run the ball in the second half. Give it to Christian McCaffrey. Give it to Debo Samuel. Give it to Elijah Mitchell as well. And that's exactly what they did. You mentioned that first play out of the break, 13 play drive. They go 75 yards. In seven minutes and 45 seconds of game time, they get into the end zone. And as you said, 10 of those 13 plays were on the ground. Six of them were handoffs to Christian McCaffrey. On that drive alone, Christian McCaffrey, with six carries, had more carries than he had in the entire first half of the game. So I think Kyle Shanahan saw what you saw, saw what I saw as well, and decided, all right, it's time to run the ball with Christian McCaffrey give some change of pace touches to Elijah Mitchell, get Debo Samuel involved as well. And even when they were throwing the ball, it was more the quick game, the short game, the screen game to Debo Samuel, even to Christian McCaffrey out in the flat. We even saw Elijah Mitchell with the catch out of the backfield. The Niners won the game on the strength of their running game in the second half. And then that opened things up in the pass game for Debo Samuel, for Brandon Ayuk, for a big Jawan Jennings catch as well. The run game was the key in the second half. I agree. Yeah, and the run game opened things up, I think, for Brock Purdy, who had an average time to throw of 3.3 seconds. That's according to Nick Wagner of ESPN. That's the longest in a game this season among players with at least 25 attempts in the game. So, you know, Seattle didn't bring much pressure. That was sort of appropriate for what they like to do defensively. They don't blitz a whole lot, but Brock Purdy was sitting back there and it was, it was noticeable. Just the eye test would tell you he had time to throw. And that's why we saw, you know, guys running free over the middle and a lot of openings for Brock Purdy to be able to hit with guys with no one around them. I mean, the Debo Samuel, you know, long touchdown catch was 75 ish yards he had no one near him and then sprung with a nice block by Brandon Ayuk went untouched, you know, basically the length of the field. That to me is, is an example of how Kyle Shanahan used the run game and play action to open things up deep down the field, combined with the fact that the offensive line did a fantastic job of both establishing a physical presence at the line of scrimmage in the run game, while also giving Brock Purdy enough time, even when, he didn't need to extend when he didn't need to dance behind the line of scrimmage of enough time to identify those open receivers that were running wild. And it basically became a track meet in that second half. Yeah. A note on that Debo Samuel play. Um, I'm always surprised when he gets going, how fast he is. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't appear fast. He got game speed. He does. I mean, he, he's a, sh- a shorter guy. He's obviously built. I mean, he's, he's strong and he's big, 
you don't expect him to be as fast as he is. And I think he also catches defenders off guard, even defenders that have played against him in the past and know who he is and know what he's capable of. But when he gets going, he can zip past you. And you mentioned the block by Brandon Ayuk, which was incredible and really was the talk of postgame in the locker room for the 49ers. Brandon Ayuk's willingness and ability to lay those kind of blocks consistently, finally getting some recognition for that. But Debo Samuel's speed was on display. And you just think back to the game against the Buccaneers and how lucky the 49ers got that Debo Samuel did not suffer a season-ending injury because it appeared like it it might have been a really serious injury for Debo Samuel thinking back on it. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, you know what the difference would have been. Niners probably still able to get come out with a win without him in this game, but it would not have been an 18-point margin. Debo Samuel was incredible. So Niners certainly uh, dodged a bullet there. But man, his speed... It catches you off guard, at least me. It catches me off guard every time he breaks one of those. He is he is elite with the ball in his hands. Yeah, I think it's difficult. You're spot on to identify how quickly he accelerates once he gets the ball. And it's something that I think unless you watch Debo Samuel play a lot is hard to kind of quantify because you would think he's you know, if you just, I'm, I bet if you checked his combine numbers, he's probably a four, five or a four, six, which is don't get me wrong fast, <laughs> but we talked about earlier this year, how him and George Kittle, at, uh, you know, if you look at combine numbers, basically run the same speed, but when you watch him during the game, there's a different gear that he can definitely get to. And that is Debo Samuel. This is the four, one fivers podcast brought to you by the Odyssey sports podcast network with 95, seven, the game, Evan Giddings, Mark Grandy, follow Mark on social at Mark Grandy, Mark with a C Grandy with an I I'm on social at E Giddings 10. Uh, feel free to download rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. I want to stick on Debo Samuel here, Mark, because this is to me where the game changed. Now you look at the totals, 165, a touchdown, and we referenced the drive 13 plays out of the, out of the part of me, the, the, uh, the second half, 75 yards results in, results in a score that the Niners then do not look back from, a part of their 25 unanswered in the second half. But the play, of course, which everyone was fuming and then applauding after the end of the game was at the 10:26 mark of the third quarter, a third and seven. Brock Purdy hits Debo Samuel on a crosser over the middle, goes for 21 yards. But at the end of the play, of course, Jonathan Abram, defensive back for the Seattle Seahawks, does a little bit extra and does something that everyone in the know would like to call Bush League, which is grab Debo Samuel's ankle, twist it to the point where Debo had to leave the field, fortunately was able to return, but everyone was maybe fearful that it had been a little bit worse. Debo Samuel said after the game, it was a play that he had to basically exhale, breathe, because he was so angry that Jonathan Abram had done something that was Bush League, that was wrong, and that nearly hurt him. And from then on, the 49ers clearly took that as an individual slight, as a team slight, and they ransacked the Seahawks all the way back to the Pacific Northwest, telling Jonathan Abram basically to hold that L. We'll beat you on the football field, even if you want to pull that stuff like you did. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the floor, Mark, but that to me is where the game really turned in favor of the 49ers and for worse if you're the Birds. 100%. And, I mean, first of all, it was a huge play. Third and seven from the 37-yard line. You're still down at this point. This was, as you mentioned, the first drive of the second half, so you're down by a point. At that moment, you're not really in field goal range, and you're facing a, a third and pretty difficult. 
And Debo Samuel was pretty well covered on that play, made a really nice catch. And as he always does, did not go down with the first tackler, did not go down with the second tackler, broke a few, got the first down, rumbled all the way down to the 16-yard line where uh, Jonathan Abram and a couple other Seahawks brought him down. And then in the scrum, as everyone's getting back up, as you say, Abram grabbed his leg, kind of twisted it and, and lifted it up into the air as he was getting up off the ground. Debo Samuel was in a lot of pain, said he just stayed down on the ground because he knew he was going to freak out if he got up and probably draw a penalty on himself. So good thinking by Debo, who also admitted he kind of blacked out in the moment after yeah. it happened. Not only is it a questionable play, you said Bush League, just because of potential injury ramifications, Evan, but also, Jonathan Abram, what are you doing? That's Debo Samuel. You know that he thrives on this stuff. Are you trying to poke the bear? Are you trying to wake him up? I mean, at that point, he had a relatively calm first half. Debo Samuel, two catches for 25 yards, two carries for 29 yards in the first half. Not a terrible half by any means, but that's not the elite Debo Samuel that we're used to seeing in the postseason. He did most of his work in the second half and most of it immediately following Jonathan Abrams leg twist of Debo Samuel. It's a bad sportsmanship move, but it's also a bad move for your football team because you woke Debo Samuel up and he is the main reason the Niners dominated in the second half. Yeah, you know, you woke up a sleeping giant, however you want to put it. I think it also was a bit of a spark for the entire team. And maybe that defense, who already had enough to take personally, considering they gave up 17 first-half points and allowed the Seahawks to go into the locker room with a lead. You mentioned the Jimmy Ward, you know, mind-boggling play before the half, hitting Geno Smith as he's sliding to the ground, which gives them an opportunity at a field goal. Um, we may be able to revisit whether or not you like the squib kick decision by Shanahan prior to. But regardless, that's a boneheaded play by Jimmy Ward. That's a boneheaded play by Jonathan Abram. But the Abram play is the one that costs you. Because again, if you're the Seahawks, you are a 10-point or 9.5, 10.5, however you want to find the line, underdog on the road. You do not want to give an opponent any bulletin board material mid-game, especially when he, you have played just about as perfect of a half of football yeah. as you could hope for in a playoff scenario. So it's not just Debo Samuel. George Kittle took that personally. Brandon Ayuk took that personally. Brock Purdy, who was banging his chest after throwing touchdowns, clearly took it personally. I'm sure Kyle Shanahan took that personally. He was on the field in the middle of that scrum after the play. Yeah. You know, you could he see him mouthing BS. That's that is bull bleep. Like you cannot do that to my players. So that woke up the 49ers and also maybe have on the other side of the football have a Fred Warner who has already given some impassioned pregame speeches prior to Seattle games. The one that went viral up at Lumen field. I'm sure there was one before the game on Saturday, probably is going to his guys like, Hey, they're going to treat us like that. This is what we need to do, which is 49er football. You do not in, in, you know, and remember the Titans, I do not want them to gain another yard. <laughs> and that is what it seemed like the 49ers defense took upon themselves. So whether it was Debo taking it personally, I know he ended up with 165, most most of it on that 74-yard touchdown score or the rest of the offense. Uh, Jonathan Abram woke up a sleeping giant, and then five plays later, they punched it in for a touchdown. In swing possession, you get the fumble. Charles Amenehi with a fantastic play, and the 49ers are off to the races. So it was just bad news bears for Seattle. And if you're Jonathan Abram, I know that's not maybe – 
the end-all be-all of the game. There's a lot more that went wrong for the Seahawks because of what the 49ers did, but that's a play you cannot make after the play. And like you said, with the Niners, arguably their best offensive player. Yeah, you're right. And you mentioned both of the, I think, the two biggest plays in the game. Uh, obviously, I mean, obviously all the touchdowns mean a lot as well, but it was the Jonathan Abram leg, Abram leg twist, and then it was the Charles Amenahue strip sack. That was an incredibly important play because the Seahawks, they were down by six after the Niners touchdown of the Brock Purdy sneak after that Debo Samuel Jonathan Abram plays. So Niners go up by six in the third quarter, and then you get towards the end of the third quarter, still just a six-point game, and Seattle is driving in fact, they have a first and 10 from the 15-yard line. Ultimately, they get a second and nine. And then Geno Smith completes a pass to Tyler Lockett down to the seven for seven yards, setting up what you think would be a third and two. But no, know. there was uh, an ineligible man downfield. The Seahawks got called for two of those in this game. So it backs them up. Instead of a third and two from the seven, it's a second and 14 from the 19 incompletion to DK Metcalf. That was good coverage by Mooney Ward there, setting up a third and 14. And that's where the pressure finally got to Geno Smith. Initial pocket disrupted by Nick Bosa. Doesn't get credit for a, a quarterback hit, a pressure or anything, but he disrupted the pocket, allowed Charles Omenihu and his long arms to knock the ball free of Geno Smith. And then it just happened to bounce past an offensive lineman who was unaware of where the ball was. And Nick Bosa follows on it. And then just a handful of plays later, uh, the 49ers are in the end zone again early in the fourth quarter. They get the two-point conversion, and suddenly they're up by 14 points, 31-17. to 17. And at that point, uh, you could kind of feel the tide turning. So in a matter of just a – really just two drives, but a handful of minutes of game time, you had the decision by Jonathan Abram, Abram to twist Debo Samuel's leg then you had the Charles Amenahue strip sack recovered by Nick Bosa. Those are the two big turning points in this game. Uh, and if either of those things don't happen, we're probably talking about an entirely different ball game. Uh, but the good news for the 49ers is they both happened and they were on the right side of those and they never looked back. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was it was a complete performance in that second half. And that's why I feel like the tale of two halves is appropriate for this game because the 49ers, it isn't as if they didn't show up in the first half, but clearly Seattle had a game plan that they were, in my opinion, able to implement, obviously more than in the second half, but they sort of dictated the pace in that first half a little bit unsurprisingly, uh, or sorry, surprisingly, but in the second half, you know, Mark, the 49ers, I felt like, especially defensively, and, and I'm glad that we're able to talk about Nick Bosa because his brother absolutely infuriated me uh, later in that day on oh, Saturday. No. Joey, Joey, Joey. But Nick Bosa was absolutely fantastic, along with Dre Greenlaw, who, of course, returned from injury, led the team with 11 tackles. You know, Eric Armstead had a sack. That's not something he usually gets because he's so busy creating room for the Bosa's, the Amenahues, the Ebucoms, and everyone else to screech through. But the Niners' defense, they showed me in the second half that they don't have to play a full 60 minutes of high top-tier football for this team to have a chance to win. And a lot of that is because of what Brock Purdy in the offense is doing along with Kyle Shanahan. But the defense, if they pitch 
a quality start to put it in baseball terms. If they give you six innings and allow three earned runs, if they play a decent half of football, the 49ers have an excellent chance to win any game. And especially if you give them a single turnover, which the Seahawks did, we just, we discussed in our preview episode, how, if you give the 49ers a plus turnover differential, they are going to make you pay and they are likely going to beat you. And in the case of the Seattle Seahawks, they are going to embarrass you like they did outscoring them 25 to six in the second half. So for the defense, I know they did not play great the first 30 minutes. I don't think the offense did as well individually, but in the second half, D'Amico Ryans and that Seahawks defense, or pardon me, that 49ers defense established itself or reestablished itself as the defense we have known to come and love, which is number one in the league for a reason. Yeah, and there's, there's two sides to that turnovers coin. There's forcing turnovers, and then there's not turning the ball over yourself. And and the stat that I I had on the preview episode towards the very end when we were making our picks was entering this game in the regular season, the Niners, when committing zero or one turnovers in games, 13-0, when committing two or more 0-4. So really not even, obviously, forcing turnovers helps. And in a lot of those 13 wins, they forced at least a turnover. But if they just take care of the ball, if at worst they're even on the turnover differential, Evan, they're going to win that game. If you are to beat the 49ers with all of their offensive weapons and with how good their defense is, you don't need to just be even on the turnover battle. You need to win the turnover battle. The Niners will beat you if the turnover battle is even. It might be a close competitive game, but opponents need to win that battle. And that's where the 49ers have been elite over the last two plus months now during this 11 game winning streak, 10 games to close the regular season. And now here in the wild card round against the Seattle Seahawks. I know we kind of checked in on the number, the turnover differential number every week in the early part of the season. It was hanging around negative two up to negative one. Oh, back down to negative two. It was hanging around there when this team was floundering, when they were three and four, they were in the negatives. What happened? They stopped turning the ball over Credit Jimmy Garoppolo for starting that trend, and they started forcing turnovers, and that has continued through every single one of these 11 games that the Niners have won consecutively. There's two sides to that turnover coin. They're forcing them, and they're taking care of the ball on the other side. Yeah, and it sure helps when you get 500 yards of total offense. (laughs) from the other side of the ball. I mean, and, and that's that's really what we're talking about, Mark. And the conversation, the first probably half of the season before Garoppolo started to play what I think we identified as perhaps his best football of his career was, all right, how many games can this defense win you? You know, how many games can this defense keep you in to the point where we're talking about a team giving up 13, 14, 15 points a game on average? Well, now it's just allow, you know, allow a team to get 20 points. I mean, 23 at the beginning of this year, I would look at it and say, wow, that's, that's a tough day for the 49ers <laughs> defense. You know, 23 points would be a lot on a team that we were comparing to all time greats and with was on an historic pace. But now with what the offense is doing, Mark, it's just can't, again, can you allow the offense to get you a lead and can you hold it? 
And that does not seem to be an insurmountable task for this defense, especially when you have Brock Purdy, in my opinion, you know, reinventing ways to capitalize on red zone opportunities and a, and a running game that now spearheaded by Christian McCaffrey, but Elijah Mitchell back in the fold. We saw Debo Samuel get some carries. We saw Jordan Mason finish out the game for the 49ers on Saturday. You know, they are playing their best football right now. And the train against a Seattle team that we thought might give you a little bit of a fit, considering it was the third time you faced them, almost brought the best out of this 49ers team to the point where next week we're going to be talking about Dallas or Tampa Bay. But I'm not really sure either one of them I feel confident in. Yeah, um, I I do want to talk about the red zone as well. Um, Okay. I don't know. I mean, they were better in the second half, but there were still some issues in the first half. I mean, the Niners were scoring on just about every single drive that they had in this game, but they were still kicking field goals. And I still think the red zone is the one. I don't know if I want to say issue, but it's it's the one thing that has kind of lagged behind as the offense has taken off. I mean, they're actually, believe it or not, their red zone efficiency efficiency has gone down since Jimmy Garoppolo's injury. They were middle of the pack, right around 15th, with a uh, above 55% conversion rate, scoring touchdowns on their red zone appearances. Uh, that number has dropped below 54% since. So not a gigantic jump, but when you consider it's only a six-game span, that's a relatively, you know, it's a, that's a statistically significant number, and they're down to 18th on the season. So Brock Purdy, the one area where he hasn't been able to lead this team to immaculate success offensively has been in the red zone, and that was the issue in the first half. I mean, the Seahawks, uh, aside from that field goal at the last second, they had two scoring drives in their first four drives, and they were both touchdowns. The C- the Niners had three scoring drives on their first three drives. Only one was a touchdown. That was the difference in the game. The Niners were settling for field goals while Seattle was punching it into the end zone. Now, of course, everything changed in that second half, and the Niners got it figured out. But when you are, assuming this team advances far into the playoffs, as they certainly hope to do, when you're playing in elite defense, a, a better defense, or an elite offense, or both, you're going to need to score touchdowns and not settle for field goals. So that's still the one area I'm a, I'm a little worried about for this Niner offense, but of course, they're putting up 41 points. It's hard to complain that much. But if you had to identify one spot where there was maybe a little bit of an issue, I think it's still the red zone. That's interesting, and it is something to keep an eye on. But to me, Mark, it really just has to do with how well they can run the football. Because, look, Brock Purdy's four touchdowns is nothing to scoff at. I do not want to take anything away from him. But where I saw this offense be stagnant, and look, Brock Purdy was, you know, what, 9 of 11 in the second half? It wasn't as if he had to throw the ball all over the field, all over the field repeatedly. But in the first half, it was because I, I just felt like they were not good on first down whether it be Kyle Shanahan choosing to throw the football or them not being able to run the ball effectively. So for me, you know, when it comes down to the red zone, I do want to see a little more Christian McCaffrey early. And I also feel like Brock Purdy, you know, on, on a third down, I, I, I felt like they were a bit more compromised in that first half as far as being behind the sticks or playing close to the sticks, you know, so, I, I see what you're saying about the red zone, but it also does feel like 
they are getting to the red zone significantly more. And so some of those field goal opportunities, sure, you would like to score touchdowns. And I mean, they could have hung 50 on Seattle on Saturday if they had scored all their touchdowns, but also the amount of red zone opportunities, I would guess, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would guess would be significantly higher with Brock Purdy as opposed to Jimmy Garoppolo. So I understand the efficiency. It's a little bit of an issue in this season. San Francisco is 19th in the league when it comes to red zone as a whole, but Brock Purdy also creates more chances just because between the 20s, it feels like this offense for San Francisco, which is weird to fathom considering where they started, uh, but has become a bit of a juggernaut. That's a good point. Yeah, I think you can, and I, I'm probably a little guilty of this as well. You see the red zone numbers and you think, oh man, you got to turn more of those into touchdowns. But the reality is, uh, you know, the more red zone opportunities you get, the more field goals you're going to take as well. And of course, you take a field goal over a punt. And if you're punting, you're not getting down to the red zone. And that doesn't even become a factor into the statistics. So uh, good point. I I do understand that. And I'm not saying that this offense is is worse with Purdy. And I'm not saying that at all. We, we talked about this at length over the, the last month. It's certainly better. Every single statistic bears that out. Um, if you had to pick a weakness of an elite group right now, it is still probably that. But I agree with the number of red zone opportunities they're getting. It's not as large of an issue as uh, maybe in the Jimmy Garoppolo era when they were not getting nearly as many opportunities down there in that area of the field. So I do agree with that. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and it was also, it was, just, it was just kind of weird to think about because in the first half, like they were 10 for 110 on the ground. It wasn't like they couldn't run the football. And I know a lot of that was because of Christian McCaffrey's 68 yard burst on his first touch on that, on that second drive, but also for, me, it's just being able to, when things get a little bit tighter and the defense obviously gets more constrained when you're inside the 20, can you efficiently run the football? Can you be physical at the line of scrimmage? That's something I also want to see a bit more early in downs from, uh, from Kyle Shanahan in this offense. This is the 415ers podcast coming at you as always three times a week. A bit of a staggered schedule this week. We're going to be dropping this episode on Sunday. And then, of course, awaiting to see who the 49ers play on Monday night between Dallas and Tampa Bay. So we'll have an episode coming for you Tuesday morning that'll drop after that game. And then your regular preview episode on Friday. So appreciate you sticking with us. Download, rate, subscribe. Five stars are appreciated. Um, Mark, that, that kind of leads us in, you know, to the next part of, of the episode. So, which is a minor look ahead. Obviously, we don't know who the 49ers are going to play, but with the New York Giants upsetting Minnesota, uh, you can take your victory lap after I finish if you'd like, considering the Vikings were uh, considered fraudulent this entire year by the majority of their critics. But you're going to get the four of the five because the Vikings are out. The Giants are going to head to Philly. So I do think my first takeaway from this is, in my opinion, it makes the 49ers' path to the NFC title game a bit more difficult just because I personally would have rather faced a Minnesota team than either Dallas or Tampa. We can get into reasons why in a sec. Um, but what did you take away from the, I guess, the Giants' victory and then how that affects the 49ers? Well, I'm a little torn, and frankly, I'm kind of frustrated at myself because as, as you laid out, uh, I have been you know, off of the Vikings bandwagon, never even on it all season long. Yeah. Very, very vocal in uh, my disdain for uh, 
uh, I don't know, this story that they were an elite football team. Nowhere close, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but if you obviously listened to our last episode towards the tail end when we made picks for Wild Card Weekend, I convinced myself to pick the Vikings to, to beat the Giants, thinking, oh, it's a, it's a battle of, you know, two eh teams. Vikings mm-hmm. are at home. They've made a habit of winning close games. They'll probably find a way to do it again. Uh, so I should have just stuck to my guns, Evan, and picked the Vikings to lose. I, I would have been proud of myself, but as it played out, I'm, I'm pretty frustrated at myself. It was a role but... reversal. Weirdly enough, I picked the giants to beat the <laughs> Vikings and you picked the Vikings. <laughs> it was, it was so kudos. Good pick. Good pick. The giants come out on top. Daniel Jones looked good. The, the job that Brian Dable has done with the giants is incredible. Um, I think when you discuss the, the road for the 49ers, you can't have the conversation. I know we'll talk a lot about Dallas or Tampa Bay throughout the week, um, but you can't discuss, you know, the, the difficultness or however easy the, the road is for the 49ers without on the other side looking at the road for the Eagles. Um, and that's a division matchup. And I don't know. I think that the Giants can give – Dallas or part of me can give Philadelphia a tough game. They have a solid defense. They haven't really gotten a ton of recognition for that defense. Uh, and, you know, they got beat at times by Justin Jefferson. TJ Hawkinson had a great game against them. Um, but th- they're a quality defense. And then the ability of Daniel Jones to run, I think, will give the, the Eagles defense fits now i i still think the cowboys probably would have been the tougher matchup for philadelphia um but i i don't think the giants going to be a cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination so maybe the the giants are able to give the 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 eagles a tough matchup maybe it's not a blowout and maybe you know they're feeling it a little bit heading into a potential nfc championship game i know i'm getting ahead of myself but looking on the other side as well I, i do think that it's not the worst result for the 49ers in that sense. I do agree, though, if you are a Niner fan rooting for the, um, I don't know, easiest potential uh, opponent in the divisional round, you should be rooting for Tampa Bay on Monday night. Um, Dallas's defense, although it has been bad over the last month or so, certainly more talented, um, and their offense has been more efficient as well. I, I think the Niners should root for for a Tampa Bay team. Uh, to, to win this game. We'll see how that one plays out, but uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting because the, the, the loss of the Vikings kind of throws a wrench into the NFC playoffs because of the, the seating and how it all works out. So I'm eager to watch that game Monday night and, and see who's coming to Santa Clara. Yeah, I'm with you too. And look, I, I don't think it will be easy or difficult either way, but the reason why I feel like it makes the 49ers path tougher is because, you know, kind of like Mark laid out, I'm, I do believe that the Vikings didn't get as much credit as they deserve for 13 wins, but I don't think that they're a physically imposing football team and they were not going to test the 49ers as much as either Dallas, who I think is would be the third best team in the NFC behind San Francisco and Philadelphia. But also there's something about playing a team. I know we just saw Seattle get waxed a third straight time, but playing a team a second time in the year makes things a little bit more difficult, especially when one, you got Tom Brady on the other side, but two, you have the Buccaneers who are a little more healthy, who have been playing better football. And I just think present 
a more difficult matchup for San Francisco. I expect Dallas to win that football game. And so that's kind of what I'm basing my statement on just because I think San Francisco is a team that struggles more if a team is able to run the football as well as pass, which Dallas can do more than Tampa Bay and Minnesota, as much as they have playmakers in the backfield and on the outside, we saw New York relatively take Justin Jefferson out of the football game compared to what he'd done. And the line of scrimmage to me is not one that favored Minnesota. Also, New York going to Philadelphia to me, like you mentioned, is an easier matchup, I think, than possibly Dallas or Tampa. So it just makes things a little bit easier for Philly, who, of course, is got its own issues with the fact that Jalen Hurts hasn't played much football down the stretch of this regular season. And, you know, they're dealing with an issue at the offensive line, having lost Lane Johnson, a member of their secondary. So they're going to try and figure things out in their first game. Uh, But I expect them to take care of business. So I I think when we're talking about the Monday night football matchup, I would rather see Tampa Bay, as strange as that sounds, saying you want to see Tom Brady. But I just think that the San Francisco 49ers match up better with the Buccaneers, even though they've already played them once. And, well, they they did beat them pretty handedly. But I think they match up better with that team as opposed to Dallas. Yeah, I think the one thing about Tampa that does give me a little bit of pause, one, you have just the greatest quarterback of all time, who, if that matchup does happen, is coming off of a playoff win against a good team and, Suddenly they're feeling better. The connection with Mike Evans has suddenly improved, which had been terrible all season long. Um, And then you also have the interesting storyline of uh, Brock Purdy's first two playoff starts coming against teams. He made starts against in limited time in the regular season. How does that impact things? I don't know. It obviously didn't help Seattle all that much this weekend. The one thing to note that is undoubtedly a positive for the 49ers out of this Minnesota-New York result, Evan, is that the Niners will have the rest advantage by two whole days on whoever wins, Dallas or Tampa Bay, because the Niners played on Saturday. And I know when the wild card schedule came out, everyone was up in arms. Oh, my God, why would you put the Niners on Saturday, the first game of the day? It's terrible. The Niners are a public team. you got to put them on Sunday night football. No, I mean, it makes things a little more difficult for you in that wild card game. But if you get out of it and the way it's playing out, you will play the winner of Monday night football, which means you will play on a Sunday. You will have one extra day of rest than normal. And the team you're playing, either Dallas or Tampa Bay, will have one fewer day of rest than normal. So add it all together and you have a rest advantage of two days against your opponent in the divisional round. Say what you want about playoff football. Two days of rest is huge. That means a lot, especially for a game like Dallas and Tampa Bay, which we do expect to be relatively competitive. That game could come down to the wire. A couple of physical and strong defenses. You could get beaten up a bit. Two extra days off is huge, and that's playing in the 49ers' favor for whoever they play against in the divisional round. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, Mark. And also considering the 49ers, at least from what I could tell, didn't really get beat up all that yep. much by Seattle and they walk out of that game with health. I mean, we're talking about Debo Samuel and his, you know, his ankle because of Abram and I know Drake Greenlaw limped off the field at one point but was able to return. They didn't lose anyone of significance. And so they are going to have the health advantage and the rest advantage, uh, I would say, against whoever they face. So that's a really good point. I uh, do want to finish this episode as always with some game balls that we hand out Mark and I will toss it to you. First serve, 
Oh. your game ball from the Saturday wildcard weekend? I feel like there's a handful of really good candidates. I, mm-hmm. I, f- I think we, for the most part, you got to start offensively. Uh, maybe there's a game ball to give out on the defensive side. Um, for me, I do kind of want to go back to something I talked about um, in our preview episode last time out, and it was Christian McCaffrey. I, I expected a big game from him. He was really good once again, had that 68-yard run. I personally, I don't know what you did, I uh, bet McCaffrey's over a rushing total, and he almost had it on his first carry of the game, so I was sitting pretty through that game. 119 yards on the ground. Didn't have a, a big day through the air, 17 catches, but one of 17 yards, pardon me, on two catches. One of them went for a touchdown. He had, uh, what, 136 total yards with that score. I know it's probably not the most popular pick considering Debo Samuel went off and Brock Purdy had a historic debut, but I'll go Christian McCaffrey uh, making my prediction come true from Friday. He was really good over a hundred yards from scrimmage again and a score. And he should have had two scores. As you mentioned, he was across the goal line that ended up being a Brock pretty sneak for a touchdown, but McCaffrey was really good once again. And as soon as they gave him the ball more often, that's when the game turned. He helped change this game. McCaffrey gets my game ball. That that's certainly a good one, Mark. I I cannot refute refute that, and uh, I think I've stated this, but I feel like Christian McCaffrey is the most important offensive player on the 49ers. My game ball, however, goes to the quarterback mm. and the man making his first postseason appearance as a rookie at home, and that is Brock Purdy. And there was a bit of a trend this weekend that I noticed that Brock Purdy, in essence, started just because he played the first game, but that was quarterbacks making their first appearance in the postseason bouncing back after subpar or in some case horrendous first halves and Brock Purdy did not play that well in the first half of the football game what he was you know nine of 19 uh, threw the ball away quite a bit down there in the red zone just didn't look comfortable but clearly got back on track as the offense got back to basics had a fantastic second half that resulted in three total touchdowns and you know I'm looking at Unfortunately, I'm looking at Trevor Lawrence, who threw four <laughs> picks in the first half of his game, ended up with four total touchdowns as well. Even as we're recording this, uh, Daniel Jones, making his first postseason appearance, didn't play, I thought, all that well in the first half, despite giving his team a lead, but did enough for his team down the stretch in the second half to win that football game against the Vikings. And, you know, as as we're recording this right now, I know Joe Burrow is, you know, is back to doing what he's doing. We'll see how Tyler Huntley plays for the Baltimore Ravens. Who knows? But Brock Purdy, to me, with the resilience that he showed from first half to second half, receives my game ball. Well, yeah, what, the uh, the one quarterback making his postseason debut who uh, had a great first half and a bad second half was, is what, Justin Herbert, huh? Technically, I mean, we can dig into that <laughs> if you really want to. Uh, I, I no, don't, we don't need to. <laughs> Justin Herbert did miss a couple of throws. I'm not going to say that collapse was entirely upon him nor it was the season of his shortcomings entirely upon him i'm I'm looking at you uh, joe lombardi but that's a discussion for another day yeah certainly i i do think uh sticking the dagger in me (laughs) you're welcome uh i do think debo samuel i mean we spend a lot talking about debo samuel he deserves a game ball as well six catches 133 yards had that touchdown from 74 yards out also three carries for 32 yards i know when he was healthy there was a lot of talk about 
the lack of success from Debo in the run game. Um, but he broke one for 22 yards, had some chunk plays on the ground, of course, had a, a lot of chunk plays through the air. Niners offense as a whole, chunk play after chunk play. I mean, 74 yards for Debo Samuel. These are all single plays. 74 for Debo, 68-yard run for McCaffrey, 33 for Juwan Jennings, 31 for Brandon Ayuk, 22 for Debo Samuel on the ground, 23 for George Kittle. It was big play after big play, and uh, Debo Samuel led the way there. Yeah, and then on the defensive side, probably uh, not Charles Amena who, but Charles Amena Hugh with a couple of sacks for the San Francisco 49ers. He would probably get my game ball if we're talking about defensive efforts just because I think he made the single most important play defensively of the game. If you had to whittle it down, of course, there was a lot of good that happened on that side of the football, but made the big play that turned over the ball for the first time, and the 49ers did not look back, of course, after they got that opening drive touchdown. So that's where my game ball would go. Yeah, huge acquisition. No one really thought about it was midseason last year, acquiring him from the Texans for, I think, a a late round draft pick. No one really knew. Yeah, fifth round, maybe even a sixth round, something like that. No one really knew who he was, and and now he's coming out and and had the best game of his career in the postseason. Also think a quick shout out is uh, deserved for Diamador Lenore, who had an interception. I'm not just, uh, I know what you're thinking. I'm not shouting him out just because he's an Oregon duck, although, you know, go ducks. Um, (laughs) But he had an interception. He had five tackles. He was matched up every so often with DK Metcalf, and he had a really good game. I know a lot of the talk the last couple of weeks was how he has been targeted and been abused, um, you know, by what AJ Green of the Cardinals, Mm -hmm. uh, also Devontae Adams of the Raiders the last couple of weeks. He stepped up to the challenge and had a really, really good game. Five tackles and an interception. It it was relative garbage time when the interception happened, but that was really the final nail in the coffin. Uh, but I thought he had a really nice bounce back game. I wouldn't say it's game ball worthy, but it's shout out worthy because he had been talked about as the weak point of this defense for a couple of months and he bounced back and had a really good game. Yeah, and to be fair, uh, DK Metcalf was handing out L's all over the field. Uh, 10 catches, a buck 42 touchdowns, one of which... <laughs> On Charvarius, he was Charvarius. He wasn't Mooney Ward on that play. He was, yeah. Ooh, it was a. Uh, oh, actually, I, I do have to give credit. So I'm in another group chat with a 95-7 the game colleague, Joe Spadoni. Got to shout him out. Who had the line of the day, which was he was more like Charmander Ward the way he got burnt. <laughs> so that, I thought that one was pretty good. Do I have to give him a shout out on that? Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, not the best day at the office uh, for Mooney Ward, but and yet they went by 18. So who cares? True. True. And uh, I mean, I guess you could be worried about Mike Evans or Chris Godwin or CD Lamb, depending on who you play next. But you're not going to go up against a, a physical beast like DK Metcalf again next week. So hopefully a bounce back week coming up for for yep. Mooney Ward. Don't have to worry about Justin Jefferson. See it. And the 49ers, we wait to see their opponent. Again, we'll have a midweek episode coming to you on Tuesday. So after the, the day after, morning after the Dallas and Tampa Bay game, that's in Tampa Bay, four versus five. And we're looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to getting back to you on the next episode. Look out for it on Tuesday morning as this concludes a victory playoff edition of the 415ers podcast brought to you by the Odyssey Sports Podcast Network with 95.7 The Game. As always, Mark, my man, thank you. Yes, sir, Evan. Looking forward to chatting once again here a little bit. 
No doubt. 49ers shellac the Seahawks, 41-23. They'll be back next weekend. TBD on who they play. We'll have all that coverage for you and more coming up next on the 415ers podcast. We appreciate you listening.